1: Now faith is the substance of things hoped for,
0: the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 New King James Version
1: But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently
0: seek Him. Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6, New King James Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time water purification engineer. He changes the water filter in the refrigerator when that little light on the inside panel turns from green to red. Well... Today, R.D., we're all about going green, about continuing our discussion about truth and faith. In our first show a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the nature of truth, and last week, we talked about the tools of truth. Specifically, we said that the way to sort between competing truth claims, like whether the Bible is the Word of God or whether it's just a collection of myth and fairy tale, is to use logic, reason, and evidence. Today, you want to move on to thinking about the nature of faith. But before we do that, how about if we do a quick review of what logic, reason, and evidence are, and how, for instance, they apply to the specific question, Is the Bible the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God?
1: Sure. That shouldn't be hard, to do a three-minute answer to a question that has consumed entire mountains of paper and ink for the last 2,000 years.
0: Well, maybe just the high points.
1: Again, sure. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Logic is the set of principles or laws, if you will, that should guide the human decision-making process when you're considering questions of truth, especially when you're considering competing questions of truth. Reason is the ability to apply those logical principles or laws to a given body of evidence that applies to the truth question under consideration. Evidence is the body of facts, details, or observation that is pertinent to the question at issue. Now, not all questions that involve competing truth claims can be settled conclusively.
0: Like what happened to all those pens I put in the supply cabinet last week?
1: Yeah, like that one. But when it comes to whether the Bible is the Word of God... Here at Anchored by Truth, we typically cite four lines of evidence that point to the reality that the Bible is God's Word. First, the Bible displays a remarkable unity for a book that was written by dozens of human authors over a span of 1,500 years. Second, the Bible has positively affected the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, for thousands of years. I mean, even today, millions of people will testify that the Bible has helped them in some meaningful way in their life. Maybe it was giving up alcohol or drugs, a dependence on alcohol or drugs. Maybe it helped save their marriage or their family, or it helped them assist their kids through a difficult time in their lives. Sometimes they'll just say that it helped them become better people and better contributors to their communities. And, of course, there are thousands of Christian missionaries currently around the world who have traveled to impoverished areas, and they've not only helped to bring the gospel there, they've not only traveled there to bring the good news, the gospel, but in going to those places, they bring with them improvements in health, sanitation, and education. So, the Bible has made a positive impact in the lives of thousands, millions of people. It continues to do that, and it's been doing that for a couple of thousand years. That's another very powerful line of evidence that the Bible is more than just a mere book. And the third line of evidence that we cite here at Anchored by Truth is that the Bible is historically reliable, and its reliability has been affirmed by thousands of archaeological discoveries, especially in the last hundred years or so.
0: And fourth... Last, but definitely not least, the Bible gives evidence of a supernatural origin by the large and unmatched body of fulfilled prophecy it contains. The Bible contains prophecies so specific, like the name of a city where the Messiah would be born, or the sequence of world empires that would precede his birth, that it's impossible that mere men could have known what was going to happen hundreds of years before the event occurred.
1: Precisely. Anyway, within those four lines of evidence that we've just cited, there are tens of thousands, or maybe hundreds of thousands, or more of individual facts and observations that help support the truth claim that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But, of course, as with any truth claim that is that important, we recognize that there are other truth claims that compete against that specific one. In other words, we recognize that there are people who do not agree with the truth claim that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But as we observed in the episode of Anchored by Truth that we did on the nature of truth, the mere existence of a competing truth claim, or of many competing truth claims, does not affect the validity of the original truth claims.
0: Right. The existence of one or more competing truth claims does not establish or invalidate the truth of any of the claims, but it does mean that we need to have a method for sorting among the competing truth claims to know which one is valid. In other words, we need to have a process for knowing who is right and who is wrong. So how do we do that?
1: By using logic, reason, and evidence. As we observed in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, the basic process of sorting among competing truth claims to determine which of the claims is actually valid, in other words, which of the truth claims is actually true, requires the application of logic and reason to the evidence, and then you just have to follow the process to see where it leads. And of course, this is the same process that goes on every day in courtrooms around the country and around the world. It goes on in science laboratories. It goes on in business offices. For that matter, it goes on in living rooms and dining rooms. Determining truth is important because, as we've mentioned before, truth is that which corresponds to reality. So a failure to find the truth, a failure to determine the truth, means ultimately that we would be basing a part of our lives on an error. That's the best case it would possibly be. We would be basing a part of our lives, placing our trust in something that is an error at best or a lie at worst. But ultimately, with respect to whether the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, it's up to every person to decide for themselves whether they believe that.
0: And that's where faith comes in, correct?
1: Correct. The question of whether the Bible is the Word of God is a question of faith, but let me hasten to add that it is a question of faith that should be based on facts. It should be based on evidence. It should be based on logic and reason. Because while we recognize the role that faith plays in individual decision-making and in the conduct of people's lives, that is quite a different matter from saying that your faith must be disconnected from facts. That your faith is somehow entirely independent of facts. If your faith is entirely independent of facts, of logic, reason, and evidence, your faith isn't faith. Your faith is either gullibility or credulity. Said slightly differently, if the Bible is not the Word of God, my believing that the Bible is the Word of God won't transform it into the Word of God. But, if the Bible is the Word of God, someone's disbelief also won't change the fact that the Bible is God's Word. It's critical that people recognize this underlying fact, this essential truth, because, frankly, eternal destinies hinge on the outcome of that question.
0: And that's why we wanted to talk about the nature of faith today. It is a popular view to believe that faith is sort of a sincerely held belief, but one for which there is no underlying support. Or some people believe that faith is some kind of an individual power or force that certain people do or don't possess. This is a view that's portrayed in a lot of movies and television shows. Some people see faith as a kind of hope or wish in which we invest our energy, but that when we do so, we are doing so in defiance of logic and reason. You hear people say things like, to believe in God, you must take a leap of faith. So when they say that, they seem to be saying that they have to turn off their brains to exercise their faith. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Christian faith is not a faith that is opposed to logic, reason, and evidence. But it is a faith that is based upon logic, reason, and evidence. Right?
1: Absolutely right. And that's why we wanted to do a show that discusses the nature of faith. As you observed, faith is neither a force, personal or impersonal, nor an unsupported set of wishes. Traditionally, Christian theologians have seen faith as consisting of three components, knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust.
0: That sounds sensible. But just to be sure we're clear, let's go through those elements individually. First of all, what is meant by the knowledge component of faith?
1: Knowledge refers to the fact that faith, any faith, has a content. Faith involves an act of the human will, a deliberate decision to believe something. So the first question that occurs, obviously, is what is the person exercising the faith believing? What is the content or the knowledge that is being embraced or believed? For instance, someone who wants to take an airplane trip has to be willing to place their faith in pilots, planes, and physics. Now, the person who takes that trip may or may not have a lot of knowledge about how an airplane works or how the pilot actually flies the plane. But in order to go on a plane trip, they have to at least know a few basics. They have to know somewhere that there's an airport where they can get on the plane, And they know that for the plane to fly somewhere, there's going to have to be a pilot in the front who will operate some controls. So at a minimum, there has to be some very basic knowledge for them to place enough faith in the airline that they are going to take the trip.
0: Well, someday we may not need pilots on the plane, though, right? I mean, the military already flies drones all over the world that don't have any human pilots.
1: That's entirely true, and it's a very good point. Knowledge is an essential component of faith, but knowledge can and does change over time. For instance, a person who was having heart problems in the 1950s may very well have trusted a cardiologist to help them. Today, a person who's having heart problems will still likely consult a cardiologist. But the way a cardiologist treats a heart problem today is going to be quite different from the way a cardiologist in the 1950s or even the 1990s treated that problem. Sometimes knowledge can grow and change in some ways, but in some ways knowledge or content won't change. I mean, whether the cardiologist was in the 1950s or the 21st century, the cardiologist is still going to go looking for the person's heart in the person's chest, not near their foot.
0: Near their foot? Really?
1: Well, hopefully not. Wouldn't be a very good cardiologist if they did. Hearts haven't moved around in people. That's the part of the cardiological knowledge that doesn't change. But today, a cardiologist can put a stent in a heart, often using only a very few small incisions in the body. Now, that would have been impossible in the 1950s. Stents didn't come along until the 1980s. But between 1950 and 1980, hearts hadn't moved. The point is that some knowledge will change over time. Some knowledge will not change over time. The question of whether Jesus died on the cross, for instance, it's a question of historical fact. Jesus died on the cross is a fact that is not going to change no matter how much time goes by. So it's important for us to be aware of those kinds of basic distinctions when it comes to the knowledge component of faith.
0: So, what you're saying is for a Christian to place their faith in Christ for salvation, it's essential for them to possess a body of knowledge. They must know that over 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They must know that Jesus lived a sinless life, preached for a little over three years before dying on a cross. But they also need to know that ultimately that man rose out of the tomb, proving that he was the Son of God with power over life and death. And they need to know that Jesus died in their place to make it possible for them to have eternal life, if they are willing to place their trust in him and Him alone for their salvation.
1: Yes. All those facts, and thousands more, form the content, the essential knowledge of the Christian faith. The Christian faith, like all faith, involves a particular content, and it's important for genuine faith for the believer to be aware of and have some understanding of that content. That does not mean that a believer must understand everything to become a Christian, but they must at least understand some things. Otherwise, their faith really would be a leap into the unknown, and that's something that the Bible never calls on anyone to do.
0: So that's one of the reasons it's so important for Christians, new or old, to get into the Bible, because the Bible contains the content of our faith. It's probably not too strong a statement to say, without the Bible, there would be no Christian faith.
1: I agree. Reading the Bible is an essential element to a person having a living faith in Jesus.
0: So once someone has some familiarity with the content of the Christian faith, what comes next?
1: Once someone possesses knowledge, then they have to make a decision about whether or not they agree or disagree with what they've just learned. For instance, imagine you have a friend who's never taken a trip in an airplane, but now they want to go from Florida to Idaho quickly. So you suggest that they take a commercial flight. Now, never having flown before, your friend asks you a lot of questions, such as, well, how does all that metal get off the ground and stay in the air? So you start trying to explain differential airflow. Yeah.
0: No. I just suggest that they do an internet search and pick up the knowledge from someone else.
1: Well, that works, too. Anyway, once your friend has studied differential airflow over an airfoil, They then have to decide whether they agree or disagree with the idea that it's possible to keep hundreds of thousands of pounds of metal in the air just by having air flow faster over the top of a wing than it flows over the bottom of the wing.
0: Well, when you put it that way, I'm not so sure that I agree with that idea. Kind of makes you think a little differently about putting your faith in the airlines.
1: For a variety of reasons. Anyway, consciously or unconsciously, We all have to make the decision to assent or agree with the knowledge we have just obtained before we will place our faith in it. That assent or agreement is a necessary, but not a sufficient part of exercising faith.
0: I see what you're saying. A person who has never flown in a plane can study all about airplane design or pilot training or air traffic control, whatever, but just because they study it doesn't mean that they necessarily believe it.
1: Absolutely. And with respect to whether knowledge and agreement are sufficient for possessing true faith, the Apostle James tells us in his book that they are most certainly not. And James gives us a graphic, almost jarring example of how just having the knowledge that God exists and agreeing with that knowledge can't save anyone.
0: You're thinking of James' observation in James 2.19 that even the demons acknowledge God's existence. James tells his readers, who think they're doing well by their beliefs, that they're not doing nearly as well as they think. In James 2:19 and 20, he says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You, foolish person, faith without deeds is useless.
1: Precisely. James is pointing to the fact that genuine faith consists of more than just head knowledge, even if someone agrees with that knowledge.
0: So the third component of genuine faith is trust. James says that even demons know that there is one God. The demons have no doubt in that fact at all. And they agree with that fact so completely that their knowledge of that fact scares them so much that they shudder.
1: Yes. Trust is the component of faith that separates a Christian, someone who truly calls Jesus their Lord, from the demons. Remember how many times in his earthly ministry Jesus confronted demons, and when he did, the demons had no trouble acknowledging that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Holy One of God.
0: For instance, in the fourth chapter of Luke, there is a description of one such confrontation. This is the description of that confrontation in luke four thirty three and thirty four in the new international version Quote, in the synagogue. There was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, "Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God." Unquote.
1: Exactly. So that incident that Luke describes is a perfect illustration that just because someone knows the truth and is willing to admit it, that does not mean that they possess genuine Christian faith. The final dimension of genuine faith is the willingness to place trust in the content, in the knowledge that you've come to possess. A person who wants to take an airplane trip may study aerodynamics all they want, but until they step on the plane and sit there while the plane takes off, they still haven't demonstrated that they possess faith. Of course, I want to reiterate how important it is to ensure that your faith is based on something that is true.
0: And that's why truth and faith are so closely connected. I know that you want to talk about that connection even more in our next episode of Anchored by Truth. But for today, is there anything that you want to be sure that our listeners think about?
1: Yes, there is. We live in an information-dense age. Just about every person in our culture has access to more information than many university libraries did just 50 years ago. Not only that, we're bombarded by messages daily. It's been estimated that the average American sees 3,000 to 5,000 commercial messages a day between logos, labels, TV shows, internet pages, etc. Everything. We're the recipient of thousands of commercial messages a day. This means that there is an enormous amount of competition for our attention. In many ways, all that competition is demanding that we sort through competing truth claims just about every waking minute of every day. And I'm not even thinking about the decisions that people have to make at their jobs.
0: What you're thinking about is that one shoe company says that their shoes are the most comfortable, long-lasting, and best shoe on the market. And five minutes later, we're hearing the same claims from a different shoe company. Or we've no sooner seen a billboard for a laundry detergent which says that their soap will get out all the stains in our clothes when we're driving by a different billboard, making the same claim for a different company. Essentially, what you're saying is that all those messages can constitute competing truth claims, clamoring for us to make a decision about their accuracy.
1: Yes. So... Sorting through the competing truth claims in our world can be an exhausting activity. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to our faith. Christians today are confronted at every turn with competing truth claims that challenge the truth of their faith. And unfortunately, for so many of the messages we see in our culture today, they directly challenge the central tenets of Christianity. For instance... The most dominant narrative in our culture today is that all life on Earth arose by chance because of the random collision of a group of molecules billions of years ago. Now, this narrative persists despite the fact that modern science has unequivocally demonstrated that for life to exist, it depends upon specified complexity and informationally governed chemical activity.
0: You're talking about the fact that, and I'm using this term very broadly, Life arose from evolution, not from the direct creative activity of God.
1: Yes, evolution as a process and billions of years as a time scale exist as a competing truth claim to biblical creationism.
0: And that's why we did a 10-part series on Anchored by Truth we called The Truth in Genesis, to demonstrate that there is a mountain of scientific observations that are entirely consistent with the biblical account. Listeners who are interested can find those episodes on pretty much all major podcast apps.
1: Right. The point is that we are asked today to sort among so many competing truth claims that sometimes we just find that when it comes to our faith, that it's just a whole lot easier to set all that aside and just believe some things. And I get that. But the danger is that when we don't properly prepare our children and grandchildren, our family, and our friends to understand the reason and the evidence, the truth that undergirds the Christian faith, all too often today the result is that when kids or grandkids leave home, when people travel away from where they were raised, they leave their early faith behind. There are some surveys that suggest as many as 75% of the kids who are raised in Christian households walk away from their faith when they leave
0: home. So what you're saying is that for us to properly pass along our faith, it's not just enough to pass along what we believe. We must also pass along why we believe it. And that means learning and absorbing not only the content of our faith, but also how the faith can be demonstrated to be true in the faith of claims that will compete against it. And that takes time and energy. Fifty years ago, Christian parents and grandparents might have been able to safely take some things for granted, that today, they just can't.
1: Well, faith like freedom exists one generation at a time. Faith and freedom both have to be actively defended and consciously transmitted from one generation to another. And of course, the only people who can transmit it to the next generation are the ones to whom it has been entrusted in the current generation, which is to say all of us. So, I'm sure that a great many of our listeners probably feel kind of like we've been placed in the same position as Queen Esther was when her uncle Mordecai asked her to intercede for her people with the Persian king Xerxes. Now, most people know the story pretty well. One of the opponents of the Jews, a man named Haman, had induced the Persian king Xerxes to sign an order that would have resulted ultimately in the destruction of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And when Mordecai learned of the order, He asked that his niece, Esther, who at that time was the queen, to intercede for her people with the king, with Xerxes. But Esther said to Mordecai, well, you know, I can't go into the king's throne room just on my own. I have to be invited. If I go in there without being invited, the possible penalty is death. So Mordecai wrote her a very famous reply that's contained in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. And Mordecai's reply included that very famous quote that it could be that you were made queen for such a time as this. Now, most people know that part of the story because Esther, of course, did ultimately intercede. But a lot of people don't focus on what happened in verse 16 of Esther chapter 4. That was where Esther said to Mordecai, Bring together all the Jews in Susa, which was the capital of Persia at the time, and tell them to go without eating for my sake. Don't eat or drink for three days and nights. My servant girls and I will do the same. Then I will go in and see the king, even if it means I must die. So Esther was willing to put herself in danger for her people, but Esther wanted to be sure that she was properly prepared before she did so, and she wanted to prepare by prayer and fasting, and not just her own prayer and fasting, but the prayer and fasting of all of the Jews in Susa. So that same lesson is still relevant today. Before we can be effective at transmitting our faith from our generation to the next generation, we have to properly prepare ourselves. And of course, that preparation includes prayer and Bible study and occasional fasting. But in our day and age, it must also mean being able to provide intelligent responses to the questions of our day. And one of the big questions of our day is that we either have to choose between faith or our trust in logic, reason, and evidence. Now, that's a false choice, but we're the ones who have to be able to explain why it is a false choice, and being able to do that is essential to us being able to transmit our faith to the next generation.
0: Well, that's a very sobering thought on which to end a show, but it is an essential one. Today, since we have been thinking about how important it is to provide for and protect our children, How about if we close with a prayer for godly wisdom and protection for our young children? A Prayer for Young Children Father of immeasurable compassion and love, thank you for the abundant goodness that you have poured into our lives. We are so grateful that we can turn to you, knowing that you will receive us with mercy and patience. Lord, We pray that you will help us to be godly parents to our children. As they begin to experience your creation and the world about them, help us to be ever vigilant in guarding them from harm, protecting them from danger, even as you already do for us. Please let them be healthy and strong, and help us to know how to help them when they get sick or hurt. Help us to give them opportunities to learn and grow but only in ways that are appropriate. Watch over them with your loving eyes and listen to their cries when they call. Help us to love them fully and completely, and especially to lead them to you and your truth. We know that all children are a blessing from you, but we also know that there will be difficult days when we will need a special grace and instruction from you. Please let our children grow constantly in their love for you, and in the appreciation of your greatness. We trust in your word that if they are trained up early in your ways that they will not depart from you. We remember that you also have a son and that you love us so much that you sent him to die for us. In Christ's name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.